insights. So in this new role, I'd be taking any valuable insights that I get from my interactions with physicians. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's a two-way communication. Not only would mm. I be executing on what our framework is and what the tactics are, but I would also be listening to the physicians and then reporting back what I hear saying, hey, this is our strategy. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to soulpre.com. Today on the Smart Athlete Podcast, my guest is a competitive triathlete who's had a podium finish at St. Croix in 2014. He also happens to be a double threat. He has his doctorate in pharmacy and his MBA. Welcome to the show today, Corey Robinson. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me, Jesse. No problem. Thanks for coming on. I know you've been, I'll call you notoriously difficult to get a hold of because <laughs> you seem very, very busy, which is good, hopefully. Um, so I kind of want to jump a little bit just straight into like what you do because um, so episode three, I had Todd Buckingham on who referred me to talk to you and Todd mentioned, he said, quote, this is what Todd told me. He said, you're in bar- biopharmaceutical global marketing for rare diseases. So what does that actually mean? (laughs) Yeah, so um, I guess to give you a brief overview of what I currently do. So I'm in a global role. um, So it's largely focused on strategy for the company. And we, I support a few products, but primarily one that treats a rare disease. It affects one in 100,000 people worldwide. Um, And we have a we have a treatment for it, and a lot of the marketing and strategy around it goes to raising awareness as well as um, just kind of understanding of the disease because it is so rare that even physicians that are trained um, in these type of diseases may have never even heard of it. Um, so a lot of it is educational. Um, but yeah, from my global position, I do a lot of working with regional colleagues as well as country-level colleagues. Um, that then can do their job better at a local re- at a local um, a local country level position. So, I'm kind of curious what <laughs> what came first, the MBA or the pharmacy degree, or were they were they conjoined? Yeah, so I guess they were conjoined. I would say um, I started off down a pharmacy track. And then about halfway through my pharmacy education, um, went to the University of Connecticut and they had the opportunity to do a joint degree. So as you're getting your PharmD, you could also work towards your MBA. Mm-hmm. Um, so I figured regardless if I was going to be a CVS, Walgreens pharmacist or work in a hospital, um, it would be nice to have a, a business background to be able to supplement my science education as well. Mm-hmm. Um and then now, I mean, I'm in marketing. I'm not even filling prescriptions. So um, I'm, I'm definitely using more of the business side of things and um, those tools and skills that I learned in business school rather than pharmacy school. But um, I'm in the pharmaceutical industry, so it's nice to have that science background as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how do you, how do you end up there? Is, I mean, when you decided, okay, let's do the pharmacy degree, did you envision yourself like okay i'll make a nice paycheck and work at cvs or walgreens and, and do that kind of like typical what people think of as a pharmacy job or, or was it like more intentional getting into this more obtuse kind of role yeah so for me it was um i mean i like to keep my options open and i saw a degree in pharmacy as a way to keep my options open um i knew that i could work in a, a retail pharmacy i could work in a hospital pharmacy <clears throat> and I could work anywhere in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, so I liked having those options. It wasn't until later in school that I found out there was different career paths that you could go down. And then more specific for me, um, that pharmacists could find themselves in a career in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, so, yeah, at first it was keeping my options open, could work anywhere in the U.S., made a pretty good salary. Um so that was kind of my, and I was good at math and science. So that was kind of mm-hmm. my interest into pharmacy. Okay. <clears throat> just lost what I was going to say. Oh, um, so you had kind of mentioned, just in case we lose you later on, 
Um, can you talk about the potential new job or is that under wraps? <clears throat> well, as long as this doesn't get posted today, I can talk about it. <laughs> it, it, it it'll be, it'll be a couple weeks. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I can, I can disclose that. Um, my actually, my current manager does know I'm looking for jobs outside the company. Um, she's well aware that I'm looking to move to Denver. <clears throat> um, so yeah, currently I'm in Cambridge, I'm working for Santa Fe Genzyme. I'm in a global marketing role, so it's very much a thirty thousand foot view of the industry mm -hmm. and how things function, which has has been great for me because it gives me a great um, broad overview of the pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm. But I'm looking for a more um, three three foot view of the pharmaceutical industry and really um, learn kind of hone my skills working closely with physicians rather than um, working with other marketers that work with sales reps that work with HCPs. So I'm looking to get that physician customer facing experience mm -hmm. um, and I'm looking to get country level experience as well. So it just makes sense for me to get that country level experience in the US. Um, but what prompted the the move out to Denver is my girlfriend's um, on she's about one year away from becoming a registered dietitian. And in order for her to do that, she needs a one year internship in a mm -hmm. hospital doing mm -hmm. experiential hands on learning. And it's similar to a MD residency program where there's a match. Okay. Um, so she found out, uh, it was early April, that she matched with uh, Children's Hospital of Colorado, which is in Aurora, just outside of Denver. Mm -hmm. And then things are going pretty serious for us. So I figured this would be a good catalyst for me to look for a customer-facing U.S. Um, role within the pharmaceutical industry out in Denver. And also Denver is a, a pretty cool place to live. My brother lives there and um, there's a bunch of guys on EMJ that live out there too. And it's, I mean, it's just, it's very outdoorsy and people are very in tune with their fitness and, and well-being. So um, very much similar to my personality. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, I'm I had an interview last Wednesday. It was a, a live face-to-face -face interview. And I'm supposed to hear back today. The guys, the hiring manager is located in California. Um, so I guess still 1.30 p.m. for him. So I guess he's got a yeah. few more hours. But uh, I'm hoping uh, to get that call anytime now, just saying what the next steps are or if I got the job. So, yeah. Um, well, yes. I was like, I, I don't, you know, I never want the episode to be cut short if we don't have to, but this is one of those cases where it's like, well, if you have to cut it short and you get good news, like it's fine, <laughs> you yeah. know, prefer you take care of it. Like, I mean, Denver's a, a, a beautiful <clears throat> city. I actually have a friend uh, that I ran with in, in college who lives in Aurora. So I've been out there. I've been to Aurora. Yeah. It's like, um, at least from what I gather, uh, nice suburbs, but then you've got access to everything that you know colorado has to offer as far as being outdoors so i mean you know beautiful place to live is there any way to like with the match is there any way to like try to match up your job with like where she is or are you just like incidentally looking in the area yeah so with i didn't start looking for a job until i knew where she matched okay um, so i mean i got a good job things are going well i like it um but it's I mean, it, it would be a good opportunity for me to get customer-facing experience, U.S. experience. Um, so like I said, this this was the catalyst that I needed to kind of start actively doing that and not get mm -hmm. too comfortable in my current position at my job. Um, so, yeah, she was looking all out west. So she, she was applying to... Um, I mean, we live together now in Cambridge, and there are good programs in the Boston area. Um, but she really wanted to, um, I mean, she was looking at these programs out West just because from a, from her interest, they're the ones that she, they appealed mostly to her. Mm -hmm. Um, they're very clinically focused. The one she got is actually focused in pediatrics as well. Um, so it was her top choice and it's a world renowned, um, children's hospital. So 
she was very excited and yeah she got her her top choice and it's i think there's like they take three they take three interns and over a hundred people apply. So it was, <laughs> we, we both didn't, we were being very realistic and thinking that she wouldn't match with Colorado mm -hmm. just because the odds were not in her favor. Yeah. Um, but apparently she had a, she's smart and she had a, um, some good experience. Um, and they liked her. There was an interview part of the matching process. Um, so yeah, she matched with Colorado and then, yeah, she matched in early April. And then I started looking for jobs out in the Denver area so I could move with her. Um, her program doesn't start till July 22nd. So I do have some time to a figure out window. a job. Yeah. Um, so hopefully I get good news today and I'll secure a job. Um, worst case scenario, I, I wouldn't get a job right away and I would be fine uh, being fun employed for a little bit and maybe focus more on training or traveling or something like that. Well, and, like uh, you got a lot of skills and I mean, it's, I like to back up a little bit and say, like, tell her congratulations for me because that's, I mean, that's that's big, especially you know when you get exactly what you wanted. <clears throat> you can't you can't ask for more than that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you it seems like you've got a lot of skills. Like, it, you're probably pretty employable, just generally speaking. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't so. be too too worried if I was you. Um, I am curious though, like, you know, you're talking about coming from like where you are now, like 30,000 feet and coming down to like the three feet view, like what for you, what are you missing? Like what, what would in, in whatever your job you're looking at, like what would a typical day look like for you? Like that, you know, that you're actually looking for. So the, not my current role, but the role that I'm right. Yeah. What, what you want to do, like what, what would that actually look like? You know, you go ahead into work and what are you doing? Yeah. So it's more, day-to-day -day, uh, executional aspects of biopharma marketing. Um, so right now in my 30,000 foot view, I'm focused more on strategy and then rolling out that strategy to the regional and country level marketers who are then rolling it out to either the field marketers or the sales reps who are then executing on that strategy and they're doing different ways of executing. Um, so yeah, very right now it's very much a high level overall strategy, making sure that us as a company, whether we're talking to a physician in Japan or a physician in the U.S., we're having the same conversation, we're saying the same messages, um, that there's no confusion there uh, between what we're saying to our customers, um, and our customers are the physicians for the most part. In some cases, it's either payers or patients, but. For the most part, in, in this example, it's it's the physicians. Um, so what I would be doing in this new role is more of that having that direct conversation with the physicians. Um, and there's different depending on what the strategies are. So I am applying um, the position that I'm waiting to hear back from is a different company. Um, so I don't quite know their strategies or what they would be looking mm -hmm. to do. But um, this specific role would be customer facing. So I'd be engaging directly with the physicians mm -hmm. and um, there's these speaker programs that are very common in the industry where we would contract with a physician to give a, <clears throat> a talk, an hour long presentation to other physicians talking about the disease, talking about the therapy um, as a way to promote our product or to raise awareness of the disease. Um, in addition to that, there's a lot of activities around congresses mm -hmm. um, or conferences. Um, so where medical societies host these events and um, it's a big opportunity for the pharmaceutical industry to have a presence there and from a regional or national level, be able to interact with many different physicians and get those messages across to them. Um, so yeah, for the role I'm applying to, uh, a lot of the responsibilities would be um, engaging with the physicians to conduct those speaker programs or um, also planning on behalf of the company, planning our activities at a conference, mm -hmm. um, making sure there's a booth, making sure there's materials in the booth, uh, making sure that we're aligned with the messages that we want to say to the physicians. Um, if there's any senior leaders in the company that want to meet with any of the physicians that 
um, I would set up those meetings. Um, so yeah, it's it's very much more hands-on, customer-facing, mm-hmm. um, which I do have a little experience <clears throat> um, doing in my current role because there's been a few congress congresses that I've planned as well as um, different events that I've planned where we've had physicians involved. So I've been working directly with physicians. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that this role that I applied to and I'm waiting to hear back today, if I got it or not, that they can see that um, it's not a drastic shift of what I'm currently doing. It's kind of, um, I'm able to take my global experience and bring it to this new role mm. and still be able to do the role while providing uh, an extra perspective to the team. So kind of, so I was like, <clears throat> I'll try to summarize if I understood. So you're basically going from where you are now, where you're you're building the framework of marketing to um, actually becoming I'll call it a cog, but I don't mean that in a demeaning way. Um, be, you know, becoming a cog in the framework and executing, you know, one part of the strategy. Right. Yeah. Okay. Would you, since you have that experience building the framework, which for anybody who's ever been in business for themselves or done any kind of marketing, you know, that like putting that framework all together is not an easy job. Um, would, would you be able to send information back up? back up the chain to help kind of affect the framework from the bottom up or would you just be executing? Yeah, no, that's a good, that that's a really a good question. Yeah, no, I would be taking any valuable insights. So in this new role, I would be taking any valuable insights that I get from my interactions with physicians mm. and it's, yeah, it's a two way communication. Not only would right. I be executing on what our framework is and what the tactics are, but I would also be listening to the physicians and then reporting back what I hear saying, Hey, this is our strategy. Physician, Dr. So-and-so thinks we should be doing this. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should reconsider this. So yeah, there would be that, that feedback that I would be providing as well. So it's really um, this customer facing role where I'm the liaison between the company and the physician. And it's a two way communication street where, um, we would be telling them things as well as I would be listening and then reporting back up saying, this is stupid. We should be doing something else. Or <laughs> this physician thinks this language is terrible. Let's reassess, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're, you're correct. That's yeah. It just, it seems like it puts you in a pretty unique position since you have that comprehension from 30,000 feet. Like, I guess as somebody that, you know, I have people that work for me and do all same some of my more like repetitive or menial tasks and then my job is you know more like higher up trying to figure out all the structures what kind of marketing needs to be done and then getting people to execute but the people that execute don't always understand you know all the cogs that are moving around so yeah it seems like you should be like i said earlier you've got a lot of skills and you're adding to them so it seems like you should be you know pretty um competitive fit in a valuable yeah, I hope way so. is the short version. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, and so for me too, so like I've been in a global role for five years. I've been on the, the marketing side for three years. Hmm. Um, whereas this new role would, to me, it's, it's something I could do. Um, it would be a challenge, but it's something that I could do. It's not completely out of left field, completely something different. Right. Um, but it, it would be something new. It'd be a challenge and it would um, be a growth opportunity for me to better understand that execution side, side of the framework and get more experience engaging with physicians. Um, that then long-term would make me a better marketer, a better, um, better at setting strategies, et cetera. So. Mm-hmm. so thinking about growth, I mean, this is kind of what, <laughs> people like us do we kind of have a a need to grow so i kind of actually want to jump jump back a little bit um like i do with all my guests i try to stalk instagrams and find out a little bit about who's coming on the show so we can talk about things so i kind of want to hear from you a little bit how do you go from being a over 200 pound quarterback to being a fairly competitive triathlete like what's what's the journey yeah, I mean it's it was a long journey. It was probably a, 
a 10-year journey. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess what, what got me there is, so, yeah, in high school, I played football, basketball, and lacrosse um, in the state of Vermont, and I was pretty good within the state. Um, but I was very much into weightlifting and, and getting big and getting strong mm-hmm. um, for those sports that, I mean, it, it helped if, if you lifted. And there wasn't, there was a few of my friends that also lifted too, but there wasn't that many. And it was amazing how much you could differentiate yourself by just lifting weights and doing that little extra to get bigger and, and well, not really faster, but stronger, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe a little faster. Um, yeah. But I would definitely say, I'm, well, actually, I was probably a faster sprinter back then. But um, <clears throat> yeah, so like that's how I ended up. And then, yeah, after a few years of hitting the weights hard, ended up 215 pounds. I'm, I'm 6'1", so um, I was pretty, I mean, I'm kind of tall, So, but I was, I was big, uh, yeah. much bigger than I am now. Right. I'm down to like 170 now, so I guess... 45 pounds less than mm-hmm. my peak in high school. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was once I went to college at University of Connecticut, uh, part of the reason I went there is um, I had a chance to play Division three football mm-hmm. at a small liberal arts school, and I could have majored in math or economics or something like that. Um, but I was thinking long term, and I didn't really see what the next step after that would be. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me in high school, I made the decision to um, go to the University of Connecticut, focus on pharmacy. That would give me a good career path after school. Meanwhile, in school, I could play intramurals. I could go to the basketball, the football games, um, and so still be a part of sport. Um, so, yeah, in, in, at UConn, I, I still lifted quite a bit. Um, but then in the summer, I would go back to Vermont and I would have an internship, but I would usually start to cycle and, and run and swim a little bit because there was a local triathlon where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so for a few summers, we'd go back to Vermont, train a little bit for this triathlon. And then, um, but I was still pretty big. I was still carrying a lot of weight. Um, but it was it was something that kind of satisfied my competitive drive and gave me something to train for and to something to try to better myself. Um, And then, I mean, I was at UConn for seven years, so I went into UConn very much a ex-high school football player and then came out more of a triathlete um, Mm -hmm. and kind of made that transition throughout college of um, rather than just doing intramurals, I joined the the cycling team. I joined the. We ended up getting a triathlon team. Joined the triathlon team. Um, so slowly made that transition from 215 pound football player to 175 pound um, triathlete. And then after school, yeah, focused a little more. I'm solely focused on triathlon. I would say in a, in addition to working. So um, didn't really play any sports um, and I guess any ball sports after college. Um, so more just focused on swimming, biking and running. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah. So I'm kind of curious, like I, I, I could, I've seen guys I've grown up with that were skinny <clears throat> and then they start hitting the weights and they get real big, but I haven't seen a whole lot of the opposite direction. So like, you know, do you have, did you have a plan or like a particular diet or like how, how do you make that transition from having all that bulk, but it's, you're not fat, you know, it's muscle. Like how do you do that and then get lean again? How do you go the opposite direction? Yeah. I mean, for me, I wasn't like naturally skinny to begin with. Okay. Uh, so it did take many years to kind of get down to where I am now, but mm. really I just, I started eating better, started drinking less i mean <laughs> college it was very easy for me to hold on to that 215 pounds because um yeah i mean we i had access to the dining hall unlimited food there mm-hmm. um did a good amount of drinking in college so that uh got a lot of calories that way um and then i was still weightlifting too so um so yeah i mean 
generally like I would weightlift throughout the school, the school year. And then in the summertime, I would try to run and cycle. So I'd actually usually get pretty lean by the end of summer um, because I would stop weightlifting and I would do more endurance sports. Um, and then, yeah, when I went back to college for the fall semester, you would usually hit the weights again and eat and drink more and put that weight back on. Um, but eventually just kind of stopped doing that cycle and mm-hmm. um, ate better, drank less, um, stopped going to the gym and just started doing endurance sports. And um, yeah, over time I've gotten leaner and leaner. Um, and I guess lost a lot of that muscle mass that I once had. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was a long, slow, cyclical 10 year process that eventually got me to where I am today. Yeah. Not like a amazing overnight transformation, like no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, some beer in between. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your honesty. You know, like I said, it's just, you know, you see, especially I'll call this the Instagram age or like, you see all these transformations like they went from fat and now they're like super buff but you know with like triathletes you, i mean you've been nationals like you've been you've been i think you've been nationals and you've been to all these very yeah. competitive races and real cut very lean but not like you're not going to stick them on the front of the like like men's health magazine or something because it's just not not the physique that is ideal so to speak so it's always interesting how like you know people can make that transformation um it's funny you bring up the men's health magazine because i actually i used to read that religiously in college (laughs) and i would pull out like um they had like inserts that you could pull out and it would give you like a an eight week or 12 week plan on getting buff or something so like that's like that would prove that was i guess my like my weightlifting coach, I would say like uh-huh. every now and then I would pull out one of those and uh, yeah, just that would provide me discipline to go to the gym and do these exercises. And was it just yeah. you or did you have buddies? You um, I had a few buddies that I would work out with, um, but more so in, in high school. Cause we had, um, there was a pretty close, close knit group of us that um, we were kind of the, the select few that would, religiously like work out in addition to going to football or basketball practice so mm-hmm. um, and there I kind of I remember must have been like 15 or 16 and my dad got me this like weightlifting book and it was like my bible because it had like I knew nothing about weightlifting but this mm-hmm. like provided like the basics on like how to do a bench press how to do squats how to do all these different things that I've never done before I went to a small high school, so it's not like we had a weightlifting coach or anything like that. It was very mm-hmm. much you had to be driven enough to figure out how to do this yourself. Um, and there was one coach that was he he got it and he was he definitely helped out too. Um, but um, for the most part, it was just like a few of us. And I remember when I graduated high school, I I mean it was kind of cheesy, but I. I'd say I donated this weightlifting book to the school or to the gym um, and really just left the book in the, in the weight, weight room for others to refer to and figure out like what, how to do a bench press and how to do squats and things like that. Were you just like, was it just like the men's health thing or did you like, have you watched Pumping Iron, the documentary with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and like in his like heyday of, of bodybuilding? I haven't watched it yet, but I it's, it's, it's piqued it's, my interest. Like even if you're not into bodybuilding, just like the the mind games that like Arnold plays with like the other guy, Lou Ferrigno's in it. It's, it's just kind of interesting for that point. So I was just curious, like it doesn't sound like you were interested in being like giant bodybuilder, just like bigger functional like football player. Yeah. Okay. Um. I'm going to get a little diverted. I saw on the EMJ site that you had your time for the beer mile listed. Was that during college when you were like training with all the beers or like, (laughs) I've never been 
huge into beer, so I've never did a beer mile, but I know it's like a huge thing for runners. Like how, I mean, how do you even get involved in doing one or like, how does that, how does that conversation come up? Yeah. I mean, I guess it, it was kind of a, so for probably two, three years, it was kind of this like running joke between uh, me and a few of my training buddies here in the, the greater Boston area. And we've always like talked about doing it. And this was mm. like back when it was starting to get really popular. Um, so we always talked about doing it. And then like one random, I think it was like a weekday night or maybe it was a Friday. So I don't even remember, but one of my buddy that one of my buddy who we trained with, he lived right near, I think it was a high school track. Um, and so one night we decided that we were going to do a beer mile. Um, and I think it was late in the season. So I think it was like October, November. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, we were all in pretty good running shape, but, um, it's not like we trained to chug beer. So that was (laughs) kind of the variable. And I would actually say the, uh, the slowest, so there was four of us that did it. And the slowest runner of the group actually won because he could chug the he could chug beer the quickest. Okay. Um, and uh, we, I mean, I would say we all did pretty well. I think we all went sub eight, um, but it all just came down to who could chug the beer the quickest and then hold it down as you run a lap. Um, it's one beer, one yeah. lap, right? Yeah. yeah. One beer, one lap. So it ends up four beers, four laps in one mile but uh yeah you can lose a lot of time if you uh if you struggle to put down the beer i feel like just even if you gave me like four cans of water i feel like (laughs) i'm gonna struggle to get four cans of water down let alone beer yeah yeah. here's something i'm kind of curious about because i know different guys talked about like I, i don't know if there's a standardization i know there's like the world record beer miles like sub five it's ridiculous um but if there's like a standard one beer, one lap, or can you do four laps and then four beers or four beers and then four laps? Is there like, do you have to do it one lap, one beer, or is it, or is it up to you however you want to complete it? Yeah. I don't know the, I, I'm pretty sure there probably is a rule book out there at this point. Um, yeah. Neither one of us like actually read it, but we, uh, we're pretty sure the consensus is you, you have, you start by chugging a beer and then you do a lap, and then mm. between every lap, you do have to chug another beer. Okay. Um, so it does break it up like that. Um, so I think, yeah, I think you do have to do one beer, one lap, or four laps. Um, I don't think you can save. I don't think you can run a mile really, really fast and then chug four <laughs> beers. Well, think um, about that would be like... an interesting strategy. I wonder if that would actually work better. Or I'm not your sure. Mile, your mile time would be a lot quicker, but then right, but then you're like exhausted. Beers, you're winded and now you got to chug four beers. <laughs> yeah. That was the, the hardest, like the first beer was fine because you, that you start the, the race with the first beer. So yeah. you're not winded. You don't have anything in your stomach at that point. Like your legs are fine. But then every beer afterwards, like you're huffing and puffing mm-hmm. and it's hard to hold your, like to chug a beer, you need to hold your breath. Yeah. And that was like my challenge is I couldn't hold my breath long enough to, <laughs> continuously chug the second third and fourth beers like so i would like have to stop take like a huge breath and then like continue chugging whereas the guy that ended up winning like he could do it in one shot like he would he would down each beer less than probably less than or right around 10 seconds and he wouldn't have to take a a breath in between chugs that's kind of it's just like i feel like there's all kinds of strategy you can get And, and, and you know i feel like now after we get done talking, I'm going to like head off to Google and be like doing all this stuff, like research on the beer mile and be like, I'll find some sub forum of people dedicated to make, be making like the fastest beer mile they possibly can. Like techniques for drinking and making sure air, to, you know, doesn't get caught. So the beer comes out the fastest and <laughs> it's just bizarre. What, like what people get up to. So I was all like, anytime somebody says, this is my beer mile time. I'm like, how did that happen? <laughs> Yeah, there's usually a story behind it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm actually kind of curious, like, you, 
you, I think I saw your your first full Iron Man was at Montreblanc. Yep. So I've heard that that course is pretty punishing, at least on the bike. How do you make the decision to like take on Montreblanc for your first full? Was it was it were you just like screw it? Gonna do it, or or was there a, a specific like I'm good at I'm good at hills, like I can do this one. Yeah, I mean, I would say so. What so what led me to my first fall as Montremblant was um, so in 2014. Pretty sure I'm getting my dates right. In 2014, the world the 70.3 World Championships was in Montremblant. Yeah. Um, and that was my first year on Everyman Jack um so yeah because we had a house and i remember meeting a bunch of guys then so yeah in 2014 did the 70.3 world championships at montremblant absolutely loved the venue it was so mm -hmm. cool i don't know if you've ever been there but it's it's such a I cool venue. i have not I, I love quebec and i i've been meaning to go but i've not made it to montremblant yet yeah no it's a cool spot because it's a ski town but it's very much like a european style ski village where if you stay within the village, like you'll have everything you need. And it's, they have this chairlift that goes from the top of the, or sorry, the, the bottom of the village up to the top. And there's a bunch of restaurants and things to do even in the summertime. Um, so yeah, did 70.3 world championships, kind of got exposed to the course, the venue, um, and absolutely loved it. It was it was a great experience. And then that kind of planted the seed in my mind of, all right, I'll come back here. I think it was next year, 2015, for the full. Um, and I kind of knew what I was getting into. I knew it was a tough bike. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I figured I'm a strong cyclist. Um, I would say of the three disciplines, that's my biggest strength. Um, so like I knew what I was getting into and I figured a, a tough bike course would actually benefit me over the competitors. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was a learning experience for sure. I, I mean, I, I definitely, I didn't underestimate it, but I wasn't being coached or anything like that. I was just mm. very much kind of, um, yeah, doing my own thing. And I definitely probably under trained, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was a good experience. My, yeah, my parents were there. Um, and my dad's always been a runner. Um, and we went back down. I think I finished in like 11. I was just over 11. Um, but we went back down for the midnight finish. And I mean, it was my first time seeing the midnight finish, and it was it was so cool. It was such a, a neat experience, just being in the village. And at Montremblant, you kind of run down this chute um, mm -hmm. in the heart of the village. And, yeah, literally the whole village is just focused around the Ironman. So it's all this energy. And my parents were there. They were watching the midnight finishers. And um, these are just, like, everyday-looking people. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not – super athletes or anything like these are dedicated people that have been training for months and months. Um, but they, they just like, like your average Joe. Um, mm. and my dad, who's a, a marathon runner, he, he, I could kind of see it in his eyes that it was something that he was thinking about doing. Like he was looking at these people and after 16 plus hours, um, they were finishing and he's like, if they can do it, like I could do it. Like he's got a running background. Um, so yeah, we actually, so that kind of planted the seed in his mind that he would eventually want to do an Ironman. And then we went back as a father son and did it, um, did the full again last year. So in 2018. Um, and that was just, that was a really cool experience. I mean, I definitely trained better, but um, I attacked the bike a little too hard. It's a two loop bike course. And like you said, it's a challenging bike and, uh, um, I, had a, I, I ended up just blowing up hard after the first loop and <laughs> yeah, just could not keep my, I, I was just, I was done after that. I, I ended up finishing and then my time was better than three years before, but, um, it was a struggle to do the second loop with a bike and then yeah. to run after that. I just, I had nothing like it was, it was weird. Um, 
Were you stopping but, at aid stations or you did you? I just, I, I just, I, I knew I was pushing too hard on the first loop, but like I felt good. My legs were fresh. Um, but I think I wasn't using power or anything, but I knew my heart rate was above where it should have been. Mm -hmm. um, and then near the end of the first loop, well, and the second loop too, there's a, it's the toughest section. There's a 10 kilometer out and back where, um, there's a few hills that you climb and I powered up those hills and that was kind of my plan that I was going to try to make up a lot of time climbing the hills mm -hmm. and then descending as well, um, pretty aggressively. But, and I felt good doing that, but then it was just after I did that, I was just, <laughs> it wasn't like I bonked. It was just like, I just ran out of energy. Like it was, it was yeah. like, I was, it was like I was racing a 70.3 and, I was just supposed to start running after that, but I had a whole nother loop to do on the bike and it wasn't pretty. My, my heart rate, I just couldn't keep it up anymore. And my energy was just low and yeah. So it was a struggle, but my dad was there. He finished. Um, and it and you, were you huge... waiting for him at the finish line? Yeah. And yeah. I got to see him. I saw him a few times on the course. Um, and that was, really nice too because i was in a bad place so just knowing that he yeah. was out there on the course and that i was going to see him on the run kept me motivated to keep going along and uh, get to the finish line so no, like i've kind of backed off on training i was doing 70.3s for a few years um and then backed off so i can focus more on business stuff and podcasts and talk <laughs> talking to people like you so like it always amazes me this is like in some ways a pretty pedestrian thing, but it always amazes me like how people like you or, you know, the people finishing at midnight have, I'll say everyday jobs, even though your job's pretty high level. Um, but I mean, you work for a company, you work at least 40 hours a week, I assume. Yeah. And then exactly. find time to like, you know, still, still train and then race for an Ironman. Like, how, you know, how do you put that all together? You know, how do you, how do you find the motivation to continue to get up in the morning or go after work? Like, you know, how, how does that all come together to actually get that, get that done? Yeah. For, for me, it's just, I think I just operate better when I'm busy and when mm -hmm. I don't have free time. <laughs> um, so for me, I just, I just find when I'm like busy at work, when I'm busy training, um, when I'm busy hanging out with my girlfriend and doing social activities and things like that, that I'm just, I'm just happier as a person. Um, and, and when I'm doing well training and I'm also doing well at work. And, um, so it's just kind of this happy medium where if, if I do everything and find the right balance for everything, then everything is, is better. I don't know if, if that's coming across correctly, but it's just like, yeah, for me, it's all, it's all just about finding balance. And um, when I have more time to train, then I'll train more. When, I, when I'm busy at work, I'll start training less. When I have a bunch of social obligations that I need to um, be at and take part, be part of, then I'll figure out from, um, I'll train less. Or, um, so for me, and, and it, it's nice that with work, yeah, generally I'm, I'm working 40 to 60 hours a week, depending mm -hmm. on the week. Um, but I do have the flexibility to sometimes work from home. I'm traveling a good amount, so like I can work from the road. Um, so it's with my training, with work, with my social commitments, I guess I have a lot of flexibility in all three. Mm -hmm. So it's all just for me of finding the right balance. And if I need to, if I have a 60 hour work week then i'm probably going to be training less or um if i have a just a quiet work week then i'm probably going to be training more so um it's nice that i am able to have that flexibility and um right now i'm not coached or anything like that so it's all very much of um i take a very i guess holistic approach to my training and i've i feel like i've found a good place for myself where um I kind of know how my body responds and um, for me, it's, I'm not looking to 
at the current moment, I'm not looking to qualify for Kona or absolutely be the best I could possibly be just because with this whole work thing and moving, I, I know that um, I'm going to need to focus more on that than my training. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and like I just have that mindset of, yeah, I don't need to be in my best shape right now. Um, so I'm, I'm still training um, and I do have a race coming up in a few weeks. Um, and I'm hoping to do really well, but like if I don't do well, like it's it's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, more of just hoping I get this job out in Denver. <laughs> Still waiting on that call, but see, I know you're like you're excited yeah. about it. It's like every time you're talking about, it, you're like, this is gonna be great. <laughs> so I'm kind of curious, like, like with Todd, you know, he's champion of everything. So yeah, <laughs> I talked to him. I'm like, what, like what now? And obviously, you know a lot of people that are competitive are focused on like, I want to be like, I was focused on, I wanted to be a pro for a long time and, um, or they're, you know, focused on, I want to win this event or be this time. Like why, you know, why keep racing? If, you know, if you're able to have the attitude of, I have a race, but if it doesn't go well, that's eh, fine. Like why get out there? Cause it, you know, inevitably you're going to, you know, hit some amount of hurt. Why go through it? You know, what's, what's the motivation for you? Yeah, no, that's a that's a good question. Um, I mean, just generally, my mindset as a, a whole is, I'm, I guess, kind of how I approach life is I'm just trying to continually be the best person that I can be. So um, the best boyfriend, the best friend, um, the best triathlete, the best worker that I can be. Um, mm. And I know that's not going to happen in the short term. It's very much a, a slow, long process. Um, so in the meantime, right now I'm focused more on being, um, I'm focused more on the job and more on supporting my girlfriend and her move, mm-hmm. um, and her career. Whereas I guess my training is taking a backseat. It's, it's not the priority right now, which mm-hmm. I'm fine with. Um, and it's, a, it is a good time because, um, last year I did two full Ironmans and I was in, I was I'm 29 now, but my racing age last year was was 29. So I was in the the final year of the 25, 29 age group. Mm -hmm. And I really went all in to try to qualify for Kona. Um, And my first attempt was in, I think it's August or September, August, um, at Montremblant with my father. Mm -hmm. Uh, And like I said, I kind of blew up halfway through the bike. So that didn't go up. That didn't work out so well. but then came back a few months later and did Cozumel in November and had a really good race. There was a bunch of things leading up to it that made it challenging. Um, but I was really happy with my performance and it just so happened that my time in other years may have qualified me for Kona, but that year there was a few other guys that were better than me on that day in my age group. So um, didn't qualify for Kona over there at there either. Um, and then now that I'm in a new age group and it's a, a very competitive age group and a very <laughs> uh, deep field um, that right now I'm okay kind of having training take a backseat to um, my professional life, my social life. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe in, I mean, I still enjoy it. So I still train. And like I said, I, um, it's all about finding that balance. So like, in order for me to be a better boyfriend or a better worker, I need to also do training for myself. Um, it's finding that balance. Cause there's been times where like I've stopped training altogether and it affects my mood. It affects my motivation for work. Um, so it's really just, I need to do at least something. Um, and I enjoy training and I enjoy racing. So obviously I'm still going to do it. I just go in with the expectation that I'm not, probably going to be as quick as I was last year or the year mm-hmm. before. Um, but it's still, it's still fun. And I still enjoy getting out there. That's fair enough. And I think I've heard that from, you know, several of the EMJ guys I talked to and just a lot of people. It's like the whole point is that you enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, then like, you know, what are you doing? Uh, you know, Chris Douglas. Yep. Yeah, so I think it was when I was talking to Chris, he was, we were talking, and he just said, you know, 
even if you won, like nobody cares that you won. You know, did you enjoy yourself? Like that's that's what you're after at the end of the day. Yeah. So. Yeah. It, no, it's very, and, and that's why I like triathlon too. Is it's very much a lifestyle, and a lot of people have that same mindset that um, it's not the end of the world if you don't win, or um, like no one really, no one really cares how well you do except yourself. Um, mm-hmm. So like, yeah, it, it's it's very much a lifestyle and for me it's yeah if i'm training well then i'm i'm doing well at work i'm doing well in my personal life too so um it's very much finding that balance so i got one last question for you and this is the question i ask everybody which if you'd watched all of todd's episode you would know (laughs) oh man i'm gonna get caught off guard now no 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 it's very simple it's it's an interest of mine because it's varied so much um but if you can only choose one thing to eat for recovery for the rest of your life, what do you choose? To eat for recovery. Ah. It's that crucial meal. Like what, what's your go-to? Hmm. I mean, I guess for me, and this is going to be pretty boring, um, <laughs> but uh, so years ago when I first moved to Cambridge to start my my job my mom got me a wooden bowl set and it came with like one big salad bowl and then like two serving bowls um and I just I would eat salads out of the big bowl and (laughs) not even use the little bowls and I ended up giving the little bowls back to her because I never used them um so like I said, this is a boring answer, but for me, really my biggest recovery food is just a big salad for dinner. Um, and it's usually my go-to meal. Um, just throw a bunch of raw food in a giant wooden bowl, mm-hmm. um, dress it and eat it. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty, it takes me, it takes me longer to eat what I put in there than it does to prepare. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's healthy. It's nutritious. Um, getting in all those nutrients after a hard workout. Um, so I guess that would, I would say, I mean, my biggest, my biggest splurge would be ice cream for sure. Um, I'm a big fan of Ben and Jerry's being from Vermont and all. Yeah. Um, but that's probably not, if I was only going to have one, <laughs> one meal for the rest of my life to eat for recovery, ice cream probably wouldn't be a, the top of the list. A, yeah, it's got a lot of sugar and fat. Oh, like salad. Good, I mean, <laughs> I feel like salad's like an answer your girlfriend could be proud that you gave, you know. That's right. Like, <laughs> she's like, I'm teaching right. Do you know what Todd said? Peanut butter and jelly. Okay. Figured he was going to say cinnamon roll. <laughs> yeah, I did too. We talked about the cinnamon but, rolls. But maybe, maybe that's a, a pre-workout snack. It seems like it's his, like, I'm done with everything. I can relax for five minutes. <laughs> <Snap>. um, <laughs> Corey, if people want to find you, follow you, see what you're doing racing-wise, where where can they find you? Sure. Um, I guess you can go to my Instagram, uh, at C underscore Rob 802. Good deal. Thanks for coming on today, Corey. All right. Thank you.